Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you could also call me Marg. This is episode 22, I think, of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers of stars-to-be and stars-that-weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Except that today is a Lazy Marg special. A true 90s sitcom-style clip show, with some bonus content peppered through to make it worth your while. The annual Wampus Frolic and Ball was used to introduce the year's baby stars to the world. It had glitz. It had glamour. It had all the top celebrities of the silent screen, and one year it even had a fist fight. Would you have bought a ticket? I've already established that the Wampas like to party, and it should come as no surprise that once they had gone through meetings of nominations, of evaluating dramatic experience, beauty, figure, and youth, and background, brains, and education, apparently, after they had done all that, I'm sure with great consideration, they voted for the young ladies they felt had the very most star potential. And once their list was set, on Wednesday, March 15th, they held quite the soiree at the Ambassador Hotel, the Wampus Frolic and Ball. It became an annual event, a sort of debutante's ball for the baby stars, introducing them to powerful players, not just within Wampus itself, but the studio heads, casting directors, regular directors, producers, and other executives who would make or break their burgeoning careers. That first frolic was one of the best social events of the season. Huge stars, the one the babies aspired to be, filled the ambassador ballroom, Bebe Daniels sang a song, Rudolph Valentino hung around looking sexy, Cecil B. DeMille observed the goings-on from a private box like it was the Super Bowl. They even published a newspaper, handed out at the event, called the Midnight Wampas, because as is becoming ever clearer, these guys thought they were pretty cute. The frolic was held on Saturday, April 21st, 1923, and it was huge. Five thousand attend brilliant frolic given by Wampus, declared the exhibitor's herald. The ball was held at Warner's studio on a giant stage they had recently completed. The dominating set piece was a giant typewriter, and four separate orchestras performed. Entertainment included dancers, including a five-year-old called Tommy Wonder. All of the previous Wampus baby stars were in attendance, apparently dressed in the costumes of their most important pictures from the last year. I can see that being rather embarrassing for the ones who didn't have very much success, but could find no further details. But the night, which went well into the morning, wasn't about last year's baby stars. There was a brand new crop of talent to display to the world. Welcome to 1924 and the third year of the Wampus Baby Stars list. And welcome to City Ordnance Drama. The January 1924 issue of American Cinematographer put it most succinctly. The Wampus Frolic was virtually driven out of Los Angeles by city administration. You might recall in the last episode, I mentioned how 5,000 people attended the Wampus Frolic and Ball in 1923. It was a huge social event for Hollywood. Ticket sales funded a whole beach house 
and frolickers partied well into the night. Well, when it came time to organize the 1924 event to debut the newest Wampus Baby Stars to the world, L.A. officials decided to lay down the law. It was too big a party, too loud, and ran too late. If the Wampus wanted to hold their ball, everything would have to be shut down. By the forceful hand of the L.A. Police Commission, if necessary, by midnight at the very latest. What kind of dork party is that? Would people even attend? And so a plan was hatched to take the frolic to new, less puritanical horizons. The Wampus Frolicking Ball has found a happy home and a warm welcome in San Francisco after being driven away from Los Angeles by the narrow-minded and unreasonable attitude of the civic authorities of that city, declared Camera in their December 15, 1923 edition. The frolic would be held earlier in the year than usual, January 19th, at the Exposition Auditorium. The San Fran Chamber of Commerce was so on board that they ousted the butcher's union who had already booked the venue for that night. Mate was out, Wampus were in. There were some worries that this win for San Francisco may spell an exodus of the film industry from Los Angeles. Hollywood, as the epicenter of all things filmdom in America, was still a relatively new concept. Filming in earnest started there only about a decade previously, and it wasn't until the late 19-teens that the West Coast became the place to make movies. So the idea that San Francisco could usurp Hollywood wasn't as out of the question as one might assume. And they were very excited about the economic possibilities. The cities welcomed the Wampus with open arms. Frolic master of ceremonies Fred Niblo was even presented with a key to San Francisco. According to the Exhibitor's Herald, three special trains were arranged to take attendees from Hollywood north to San Francisco. All aboard the Wampus Special! Thousands of fans lined the streets, hoping to catch a glimpse of the stars in attendance, like Pola Negri, Jackie Coogan, who's not even ten years old yet, Barbara Lamar, Hoot Gibson, Conrad Nagel, Bebe Daniels, Lou Cody, Anna Q. Nielsen, and even Strongheart the Dog and his wife. The giant typewriter from the year before was brought back, and everyone danced, laughed, and drank well into the night. Take that, Los Angeles. It was Hollywood's biggest party, but it wasn't in Hollywood at all. Please excuse this interruption for a real ad for advertising in Photoplay in 1926. The man who thought a buggy was good enough. In the old days, a solid conservative citizen might sniff and tell you he didn't read advertising. He didn't think so much of the horseless carriage, either. The telephone was newfangled and an insult to the United States mail. As for radio, aeroplanes, wireless photography, if they had been born then, he would have thought them a bit immoral. But he's changed. He's been educated. His point of view has been made broader and more modern. He has been civilized by the automobile, the telephone, 
radio advertising. Every single one has opened up new paths for him, taught him new things. Advertising, especially. Advertising tells him the newest things to wear, the best things to eat. Advertising tells his wife how to make a home up-to-date and attractive. Advertising tells him the prices to pay for the things he buys, saves him from the old-fashioned ways of doing business, helps him live well, keeps him modern. Advertising can help you. The advertisements in this magazine are here to tell you many things that make life more comfortable more interesting, happier. Read them faithfully. They'll keep you abreast of the times. They'll prevent you from becoming the type of old fogey who doesn't read advertising. And more from the advertising section of that very magazine. Hins Honey and Almond Cream Shall I stop the game while you powder? The scene, a national tennis tournament. Great stadium packed. Then she powders for the steenth time in full view of the gallery. No wonder her escort waxes sarcastic, for it annoys him to see a girl powder in public. It's the same with most men. And why powder in public anyway? Quite unnecessary if you use Hins Honey and Almond Cream as powder base, for it holds the powder for hours. Just pat it on, then powder at home. Hours later, your skin will still breathe a petal freshness. Another thing, Hins Cream protects the skin, keeps it soft and young and smooth. A note to the address below will bring you a sample bottle. Send for it. Made and distributed by A.S. Hins Co., Bloomfield, New Jersey, Department 52. A division of Lean and Fink Products Company. Yes, on February 5th, 1925, the Wampus were permitted to return to Los Angeles for their annual frolic and ball. No, they did not agree to shut everything down by midnight. The L.A. City Ordinance that had driven them to San Francisco the year before was repealed, giving way for festivities that could run well into the early hours. Motion Picture Magazine described it as being quite the wild night. To tell the truth, the Wampus was overwhelmed by popularity. The old woman who lived in the shoe had mild troubles in comparison, there were so many guests that the hosts were almost distracted. It was, in truth, a mob scene. Some of the guests got in by mistake, one in particular. He was a tall, impressive-looking gent who neglected to leave his name. During the evening he made his way to Harold Lloyd's box and craved the honor of shaking hands with Mildred Davis, Mrs. Harold Lloyd. As Mildred is always sweet and lovely about such things, she surrendered her hand to a warm grasp accompanied by honeyed words of praise. After her admirer had departed, she found that he had nipped off a three-carat diamond from one of her rings. 
It wasn't all mob scenes and petty thievery. There were also some sick burns, according to a number of sources, including photoplay. Master of Ceremonies Bert Lytell welcomed Baby Betty, a four-year-old entertainer, to the stage. From the crowd, somebody asked, Who's that baby? I don't know, replied another voice. Probably Charlie Chaplin's next wife. Ha! Because Chaplin is a fiend, you get it? He's a sex fiend. Wampus Frolic promises to set West Coast on its ear, reported Moving Picture World on February 5th, 1927. The 6th annual Wampus Frolic and Ball was held on February 17th, a Thursday, at the Ambassador Ballroom, with Master of Ceremonies Fred Niblo and, as usual, a wide array of special entertainments, one of which, reported in Screenland, struck me as something I would have found particularly boring to watch. Doug Fairbanks played a set of that fast-moving game, Doug, an invention of his own, which is a cross between tennis and battledore. Doug and his three fellow players kept the audience laughing or applauding by their footwork. Imagine being that big a movie star that you can force a whole audience just to watch you play a made-up game you named after yourself. Good lord. In slightly more interesting news, one of the Wampus baby stars, Ada Mae Vaughn, fainted on stage. She was okay. And some enterprising individual sold 1,000 counterfeit tickets to the event. Pandemonium. While well, the Exhibitor's Herald said that the 7th Annual Wampus Frolic and Ball, held on Saturday, February 25, 1928, was characterized as the greatest ever by that organization, they also had to admit that attendance didn't meet expectations. Though 3,000 tickets were available, several of the box seats were empty, and many $10 tickets... That's about $180 in today's money, according to Google, went unsold, as that was double the price of previous year's tickets. The box seats went for between $180 and $250. It's a bit unfortunate that sales weren't quite as expected, as just a few weeks before, the Wampus had voted to donate 40% of their profits from the Frolic to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. Founded in 1921, the fund was first conceived by Mary Pickford to help industry colleagues who had fallen on hard times. Now known as the Motion Picture and Television Fund, in the century since the organization was founded, it has helped countless people in need of support who made their careers in the entertainment industry. It includes the operation of a long-term care home. Variety reported, Wampus Frolic in the Ambassador Auditorium, Feb 25th, grossed only $23,000, with expenses $14,000. The Wampus share of the $9,000 net was $5,400, with the Motion Picture Relief Fund beneficiary of the remaining $3,600. As a result of the poor biz, it is expected the Frolic of 1929 will be in San Francisco. Still, the VIPs were there in droves. The co-master of ceremonies were comedic actor Charlie Murray 
and teenager Jackie Coogan, who held court over the likes of Mary Pickford, who bought the first box seats undoubtedly to drum up interest on behalf of the fund, Douglas Fairbanks, Jack Dempsey, Dolores Del Rio, Clara Bow, Tom Mix, Ronald Coleman, Charlie Chaplin, Colleen Moore, Lionel and Jack Barrymore, and many, many others. Thirty different vaudeville-style acts entertained the crowd, including a rare live appearance by the R-Gang kids. So while there were some empty seats, at least those there had a pretty good show. And if they stuck around afterwards, they even got to see a fight! Lionel Barrymore was chatting with Owen Moore and Myron Selznick, brother of David O., on the lawn of the Ambassador Hotel after the Wampus Frolic wrapped up, when his brother Jack Barrymore interrupted the conversation. Having imbibed at the ball, Jack was in a contentious mood and decided out of nowhere to insult Myron and challenge him to a fight. Though at first the others tried to, you know, get Jack to just fuck off, he kept persisting. What he didn't know, though, was that Myron was an accomplished amateur boxer. Jack received a swift couple of punches before his brother and Owen were able to separate the two. With a black eye and a hangover, Jack disappeared for several days. I think I won the fight, Myron was quoted.
All of these Mopus boys, and remember, they were all boys, that there was a group of women writers who called themselves the Wasps, these boys did love their frolics, but maybe, just maybe, there was something more nefarious going on over at Wampus HQ. The Wampus Exposed, read a headline in the Exhibitor's Herald, May 20th, 1926 issue. Ken McGathy has exposed the innermost secrets of the Wampus. He hired a couple of high-powered detectives to watch the cinema publicity purveyors during their recent installation festivities at Lebec, where they were hidden away in the forest primeval. And here is what they discovered. During the year or so the spies reveal, the Wampus tribe gathers together the names of all the newspaper managing editors and dramatic editors that have been good or bad to them. The names of the good M.E.s and D.E.s, so say the spies, are placed into a golden or tin receptacle and deposited on a high stone altar erected to the great god space in the secret confines of their primitive lair. Before the urn, the high prophet of the Wampus burns a potent liquid that emits a plaid flame, while the lay brothers, in the position of prayer, intone a weird chant that probably means nothing and sounds worse. At the conclusion of the evocation of the names of the good M.E.s and D.E.s are distributed among the brothers, and these receive clean carbon copies of items concerning their favorite cinema stars or best cash customers of the individual Wampus. However, the managing and dramatic editors who have been cruel to the Wampus members, either collectively or individually, throughout the fiscal year do not fare so well. In fact, an insidious and insequitous curse is placed upon them and their posterity for generations to come. In the center of the secret forest circle is a huge iron cauldron. Beneath it, the flames from burning typewriter ribbons writhe and hiss. During a wild, mad, uncanny dance about the seething pot, the members hurl into it different articles filched from the desks of the bad M.E.s and D.E.s, blue pencils, shears, cuts, known in the vernacular as thumbnails, and which appear at the top of columns, paste pots, and other Wampus members' exclusive stories, or anything else dear to the editor's hearts, over which they cast their malicious spell. By the time this boiling mass is consumed in the cauldron, the brothers have become exhausted from their demonic, frenzied gyrations, and in grotesque contortions lie breathless and supine upon the surrounding greensward. The malodorous vapors rise slowly from the steaming vessel, are seized upon by the sinister midnight winds, dissolved and lost. This horrible and heathenish maldiction, so say the spies, falls upon the innocent heads of the bad managing and dramatic editors, and all their children grow up to become copy readers. Ah, never mind. Sounds like a regular wampus party to me. Who's that baby? Thank you for listening to this highlight reel. Consider it the closest you'll ever get to reading a real copy of The Midnight Wampus. Next week, it's 1929, the year of the first Academy Awards, the stock market crash, and 13 more Wampus Babies. I have been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.